We're going to open up the Gospel according to Mark this morning. We're going to go to Mark chapter 7. So I want to invite you, if you will, to join me in Mark chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible or a smartphone or some sort of device that will get you access to Mark chapter 7, we want to put a Bible into your hands. So if you would, do me a favor and raise your hand and hold it there. We want to put a Bible into your hands so that uh, this isn't just something, I, something where I stand up here and act like the expert and, uh, and tell you what to think or believe, but we want this to be a real and tangible corporate practice in which we sit under the good news that comes to us in God's Word and let that shape us. We, we say this often that we don't just simply open the Bible, but miraculously something happens, it begins to open us. We don't just expose what's in these words, but somehow these words by the power of God's Spirit begin to expose us. So I want to invite you to Mark chapter 7 where we'll spend our time. And as you're making your way there, I want to maybe introduce to you what it is that we'll see in this chapter that we'll read together in its entirety, both because of where we've seen God take this story of Jesus of the last few weeks and the last few chapters and, and where maybe we might be going today. So if you have ever found yourself to be a little bit skeptical of people who are religious, if you have ever had doubts or questions about who it is that people say that God is and who it is that people believe that Jesus is, then this chapter is for you. Jesus, in a more powerful way than I think in any other text of the Scripture, and in a more direct and maybe even confrontational way than anywhere else in the Bible, addresses the skeptics in the room directly. So, so Jesus speaks out, and on our behalf, if you've ever had doubts or skepticism or cynicism about everything that might be said or believed about Jesus, Jesus comes to your aid. Jesus jumps on your side and I think points out the root that, that we have our skepticism. He, he points out the root problem in the human heart that exposes why you and I probably have a healthy dose of doubt and skepticism for people who call themselves Christians. So even if you're in this room and you would never call yourself a Christian, but you probably have a lot of questions and, and maybe even cynicism and doubt about Christianity and the people who call themselves religious, today is a very good day for you to be here because this text Jesus, in this text, Jesus identifies directly with you and I hope shows you something, maybe makes a few tentative assertions that might change the way you see all that we believe about God. Maybe even see the way Jesus demonstrates the character and nature of God in a compelling and transformative way. So let's read this together beginning in verse 1 of Mark chapter 7. We'll read the whole chapter in its entirety together beginning in verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples, that is Jesus' disciples, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dinner couch, dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart 
is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he, that is Jesus, said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephpatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them to tell no one, or excuse me, the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. 
And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. Jesus has some of the most important encounters with the people of His day. First, He is sought out by a group of religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, who represent an oral tradition of their elders. Deeply, highly religious people. But the encounter they have is not a pretty one. It's not a kind one. In fact, it ends with sweetheart Jesus dropping some names, some cynicism, and as I hope to point out to you and to my wife, some sarcasm. But then he Directly as a result of interacting with highly religious people, he travels outside of the area of the religious people to the area of the Gentiles, the non-religious, the pagan, the atheistic or polytheistic. And he encounters two people. And sweetheart Jesus shows them first an odd form of mercy, but then an intimate, and I'll argue even maybe an awkward kind of mercy He encounters three different sets of people. First, the highly religious people, and then two different sets of deeply pagan and irreligious people. So I want you to imagine for just a minute, in the life of our own church, in the life of our own sphere of influence, maybe the relationships that exist in your family and your friends, I want to paint a picture of a type of person And then I want to maybe contrast it with another type of person. I want to see where maybe your heart and my heart lie. So imagine from the perspective of of our church. Just imagine as a group of people, you guys have all gathered here. Imagine if a person were to walk in here who is very, very well dressed. Very well put together. Very well cleaned. Smelling of clean. Smelling of different aromas and perfumes and fragrances. And this person... Not only did they look clean, but they acted clean. They didn't hang out didn't hang out with the rejects, but instead, these people always associated with the upper echelon of society. And when they came into our group of people, they brought with them gifts, and they gave generously to our church, to the cause of the gospel in Sioux Falls. Right? And they gave generously to you and to me and, and the mission that God has called us to accomplish here in our city. Gave. They gave religiously. Quite literally, they gave regularly. And they invested. They looked clean. They smelled clean. They acted clean. They would never let a bad word come out of their mouth. In fact, you could probably see them cringe if someone said something inappropriate or if someone cussed in front of them. Now, I want you to imagine that person, that well-put-together person. And then I want you to imagine another person. A person who is loud. A person who is arrogant. A person who comes into the presence of people like us who might call ourselves believers in Jesus and demands attention, demands to be served, demands respect, demands something and feels entitled to something, even though their life does not seem to add up. They made bad decisions. They don't smell very good. Their family's got lots of issues. They bring with them lots of baggage from relationships. We would call them a drama queen. You got the picture of these two kinds of people. One individual who is living a life according to a set of order. They have their life together. They're in no debt. They give generously. 
And then another group of people who maybe are quite the opposite. They're in debt. They got problems. They got broken relationships. They have a bad reputation. And which would you like to hang out with? Which would you like to invest your emotional capital into? Which would you like to spend your time with? Which one, if someone asked you, hey, tell me about this Connection Church thing that you were a part of on Sunday morning, would you want to brag about? Hey man, come hang out with this Connection Church. We've got, and then fill in the blank with the person you'd most likely brag about. We have some really clean people who smell really good and have their life put together. Or we have these other people that really have issues. They're really jacked up. And every time we hang out with them, you find out more of their Jerry Springer family story. Which one would you brag about? Which one would you lower your guard around? Which one would you make yourself vulnerable in front of? Because that question lies at the root of Jesus' words in the first chunk of this chapter. And it lies at the root of Jesus' actions for the rest of the chapter. For the people who came to Jesus, who are the most righteous, who had their lives together and their things were orderly, those are the people that Jesus butts heads with. And the people who have weird stories and have problems and issues that take up Jesus' time and energy. Those are the people that Jesus seems to show the most mercy to. And I think I can show you that Jesus calls us to trust not in our own external righteousness, but in His perfect work on our behalf. For no one is so unworthy that they cannot receive the blessings of Jesus Christ. I want you to see here that Jesus calls us And if you come in here in this room with skepticism about who religious people are and what they look like, how they live, and what they believe, Jesus identifies with you in this passage and stands up against those kinds of people that would probably make you annoyed and draw your own ire and cynicism. And Jesus makes it pretty clear that if you trust in those things, if you trust in the visible things, the superficial yet maybe tangible things, you might miss out on His perfect work on our behalf. Maybe to say it this way, what Jesus has done is greater than what you have done. And whether you have done things that are great and mighty and perfect and make you clean and appear righteous, Jesus has done something much better. But if maybe your past is a litany of things that you've done that are wrong, that are awful, that have put you in the bad crowd, Jesus has done something that is greater. So there's some terms I think we can kind of unpack here that you'll see us use throughout the rest of this passage. These Pharisees were highly religious people. Uh, They they end up being fairly demonized in the Gospel of Mark and Luke. They they get a bad rap. They they do some things and say some things that Jesus confronts. I don't know if you caught this, but this this sweet Jesus, right? He calls them a hypocrite. Just straight up name calls these people. So these Pharisees were an odd group of people in the story of the Gospels. Because if you knew them, you would think pretty highly of them. They were well-educated. They knew the Bible. The process of becoming a Pharisee was long and arduous. Probably as difficult or probably as, as they were probably as highly trained as we would kind of regard people who are medical or, or people who are lawyers, people who have devoted almost a decade of their lives to the kind of academic preparation of their practice. That, that's the Pharisees. Uh, they memorized more Scripture than I ever will. In fact, one of the first things that they were required to do was to, to begin to commit the beginning first five books of the Bible, the Torah, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, to memory. 
So before you think that these guys are bad, remember that these were the, these were the elite. These are the people you aspired to be. These are the people you hoped one day your child would grow up and be like. And yet when they meet Jesus, these highly religious folk butt heads with Jesus. You would think Jesus, oh man, you, you know the word. Ah, oh, great. I, you, you can see Jesus like quoting John 1. I am the word. You've memorized the word. Here I am. I'm the word incarnate. Let's be buddies. And he isn't. In fact, Jesus is more brutal, he's more ruthless and relentless to these highly religious people throughout the Gospels than anyone else. I would say he probably is living out the principle we see throughout the Old and New Testament that the Lord, our God, actually draws near to the humble, but he resists the proud. And Jesus is the living, breathing example of this. You see, these people were well-to-do. They, they didn't struggle. They were, they were in high esteem. And when, when they told someone to do something, and when they gave someone a religious truth, they ran with it, and they had power and authority. And, it, and it's a strange paradox that Jesus would be so offended by them. And in this case, in chapter 7, they are so offended by Him. So they come immediately, and they begin to accuse Him of these things. And their focus and their, their desire and their hunger in the world is not necessarily for is in their heart and what is in their own souls, but it's more what is in or what people can see. It's what is on the surface, what people appear to be on the outside. And so I would argue these Pharisees devoted a great deal of their time concerning themselves with the way that they appeared to people and not necessarily with the way they were in their inner depths. And so Jesus calls them a name, a name that you might hear from Maybe even come out of your own skeptic mouth. Hypocrites. What does that mean? Hypocrite just simply means a double-minded person. A person who is not consistent. A person with integrity is together, right? You are integrated. That is, all things are together in you. A person that's disintegrated is, is divided. Okay, so if you find yourself being different people around different people, you are disintegrated. You are not integrated. Your identity is not integrated or united, so therefore you have no integrity. You've seen this? you found this in yourself? You find yourself saying certain words around certain people and then other words around others? Find yourself dressing and acting and looking a certain way over here and different way over here? Maybe even more so, have you seen other people do that? Who treat you one way in this context and treat you this way in another? Treat people this way in this context and treat other people another? They're disintegrated. They're, they're double-minded. They're two different people. And as Jesus would say, that lack of integrity makes them hypocrites and he begins to quote isaiah isaiah chapter 29 he says this people honors me with their lips they say the right things but jesus says according to the prophet isaiah their heart is far from me and since even though they say good things their heart is far from God, verse 7, says that they're doing these things in vain, that their worship is actually a waste of time, and they're teaching things as though they're truthful doctrines, even though they're actually just commandments that they've made up. So let's step out for just a second. Let's kind of break that down. Jesus encounters this people, the Pharisees, the highly religious people who have an order, right? They have, they have a way of living. If you want to understand that, begin to dig into the book of Leviticus. It's actually a pretty interesting book. Uh, it can be boring, and, and sometimes we joke like all, all, Bible, reading, uh, all Bible reading plans in, in Leviticus, right? 
you know, I'm going to read the Bible, and you get to Leviticus, and you're like, what? Right? So I give you permission, skim there, but if you get a moment, go back there and, and read it from the perspective of this is what these highly religious people would do. And it was a good thing. God gave them this order so that they would live in such a way that they stood out from the crowd. They would believe and act in such a way that they would look different. They were set apart from everyone else. But Jesus comes along and says that they're so set apart that they're actually disconnected and set apart from God. Not because they haven't obeyed, but because they've added to the commandments given to them. Jesus confronts them. And this group of highly religious people who are fairly orderly in the way that they carry themselves, instead of being right before God, actually defile themselves and are hypocritical. And Jesus is accusing them of believing one thing in one context and living another in a different context, and thereby calling them hypocrites. They're saying that their relationship is to God, but ultimately their relationship is to their appearance. So we use a word in, in most of Christendom, it's called legalism, right? This is, a, this is a scary word, be careful if you've had any uh, encounter with the church, be, beware when you use this word, this is sometimes like, a, this is kind of a word people throw out to just basically a junk drawer where you can throw anything you don't like into legalism, but I want you to see very clearly what it is. Legalism is finding your identity and your actions and your outward appearance and your outward achievement. Legalism, that is the law, your abiding of the law, your obedience to the law gives you purpose, identity, and meaning. And so legalism for these people was that they had a job, they had a role, they had a sense of purpose, worth, and identity based on their obedience to the order that God had given them. And so we call them legalists because their focus is on themselves. And the substance of their order is themselves, not God. The substance of what they do, the things that they accomplish aren't ultimately glorifying God or drawing attention to God, but they are drawing attention to themselves. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, there's one vice to which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. That is pride, self-conceit. There's one vice that we clearly see in others and we, we denounce it, but we are so, so hesitant to point it out on ourselves. So much so that you'll find it in our culture to be attributed as basically a virtue, not a vice, as C.S. Lewis calls it. Right? Ever heard that? From the, you got you to you play with pride, right? You do your work with pride. What is that? It's a sense of self-worth, is it not? It's a sense of self-achievement. It's a sense of self-esteem and self-value. The problem is that that esteem that you give to yourself comes from yourself, and therefore it's a form of pride. Make no mistake about it, esteem is good. What someone gives to you and attributes to you, if someone esteems you, that's a good thing. And the Bible makes very clear that the esteem of a great one is to be a great one. A great gift that we get is the esteem that comes from God. But esteem from someone who is low, someone who is defiled in this case is is no value at all our self-esteem is a it's an echo chamber it's a silo in which we say good things about ourselves but in the end the only authority we give is from ourselves and this is a form of pride these early teachers certainly knew who jesus 
was. They saw his works, but instead of wanting to exalt him and pair up with him, they wanted to take him down. And the reason is because what he was teaching pointed radically away from the self, radically away from self-esteem. You see the cleanliness that these people were encouraging? Did you catch this weird set of laws and rituals of cleanliness? The comparison that these people were making about cleanliness had nothing to do with hygiene. had nothing to do with keeping things orderly. It was all about a ritual purity, a religious tradition that went beyond what the Bible even commanded for them. And these traditions were used in order to establish a spiritual superiority over all of the people. OCD people can relate to this. Have you ever had a tradition that spun so out of control that began to seek itself and point to itself that it lost its object? OCD people can relate to this. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this because my wife is not in the room. Um, but like there's, there's this sense in which like things just have to be clean because they have to be clean even if they're not dirty. And there's this kind of weird thing that happens. We do it, my, I do it in different ways. My wife does it in different ways. My wife has these sections of the house where it's like it's got to be clean. It doesn't matter what we're going to clean it. Right? And then I have like the garage. I like to power wash out the garage floor. And I, I, something, I, get, I know there's, I, I'm seeing a counselor about this, but there's just something that feels good about having a clean garage floor. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's happy, go lucky, that's, that's awesome. And the object is to keep things orderly, to preserve them, and to maintain them. But, but there's something weird that happens, and some of you with OCD tendencies can really relate to this, that you really can't even enjoy the fruit of your labor, can you? Because the minute you finish cleaning it, you've lost the use of it. Ever seen this? Like, it's so clean and so perfect that you can't touch it. So there's like these places in my house, now my wife would never say it to you, but certainly to me, that you're not allowed to touch. And it looks like it's cleaned and ready for you to use. Oh friend, it's not. It is there to appear clean and to be clean and to maintain its cleanliness. And friend, it better stay clean. Like I, mean, I share with this, if you come into my house, we joke about this, but like this is why people hate Americans. We have this whole, uh, we have this whole cabinet of, of dishes that we were given when we got married called China that are there. Why? Why? Just to sit there and look pretty. They serve no purpose. Like you come and you, and if you, and you would think, oh, this is great. I, we're going to get to eat on those plates. No, 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 friend. Those are to stay clean. Those are not to be used. Right? And you, you see like the object of dishes. Think about it. The object of a dish is to have food. Right? And yet these dishes have such a, a high standing, such a cleanliness and such a luxury to them that they no longer serve their original purpose, do they? And there's so much energy poured into their appearance that they don't even serve a purpose. And their appearance, get this, becomes their purpose. The funny thing that happens when I finish cleaning the garage floor, I don't want to park my dirty car in there. Oh, this is a beautifully clean garage floor. This is amazing. And then I'm thinking, I've got to put all this stuff back in here. And all of a sudden I realized, oh my goodness, this, this cleanliness was probably just for its own sake. It didn't serve a purpose. The purpose of a dish is to hold food. The purpose of cleanliness is to increase its function, its utility. Let me put it this way. The purpose of, of a clean truck is to go mudding in it, right? The purpose in a clean car is to go drive it. The purpose of a, a clean dish is to put food in it and eat it. 
right? The purpose of clean sheets is to, to sleep in it, right? The purpose of clean towels, even the decorative ones that, that are in the, like, the guest's bathroom are to actually dry your hands. And something crazy happens, and I think you know what, what I mean when I say this, when, when we put so much emphasis on the appearance of these things and the tradition and ritual that goes into preparing them, we lose the purpose. And so when Jesus says in verse 6 that these people honor me with their lips, they're doing the right thing. They've actually done it to the extent and found their identity in the tradition and ritual that verse 6 tells us, according to Isaiah 29, that now their heart is far from God. And the original desire of their heart was to be in communion, to be close with God, to have the joy and mercy and peace that comes from knowing that you are right with your Creator. And all the while, the steps that they took to earn this favor with God put them more at more at odds with Him. Can you relate? You put so much effort into something that you can't even enjoy it. You miss the object. You become more obsessed with keeping it clean than you are using it. I remember several years ago, I was, while I was in college, I worked for the Department of Agriculture, and, uh, and that just meant the government paid me to sit in a pickup all day. Uh, the statute of limitations is up now. You can't get fired for that anymore. Uh, but like, you know, I, I would just be on the clock observing and inspecting uh, planes that were you know, doing crop dusting over crops and fields, and I sat around in a pickup most of the day, and about halfway through there, I, I, also my job was to get people unstuck out of the mud, and I had a nice pair of boots, and I just kind of like destroyed them in the mud and the muck and you know what's mixed in with some of that, that kind of stuff it's fertilizer if you will and uh and so i was like man i need a new pair of boots and i went and bought a new pair of work boots and you know what happened there i went to work with this brand new pair of work boots and something funny happened right i no longer wanted to step into the mud i no longer wanted to do work people get stuck in the mud or i'd have to like walk across the mud to do something and i'm like I'm, I'm not i'm not taking my new shoes into the mud and think about the absurdity. It finally occurred to me after doing this for a few days. The purpose of a, and this, and this is why I say this, because it's so, so powerfully obvious. The purpose of a work boot would be work. And you might think, you might think that that's an obvious axiom. That's something that we would never miss out on. Something so obvious we would never be distracted by it. But friend, it was an odd thing when the cleanliness and the newness of my work boot kept me from actual work. And Jesus says it's possible here. It's possible here that some of the things that we mean to do with good intentions, even with intentions of being right with God, might actually alienate us from God. And the things that we mean to do to be right with our Creator might actually make us further from Him. Because we put our focus, we put our identity and our sense of urgency on ourselves and what we do and not what He has done. I think if you look around, you see this. I think if you look closely, this kind of hypocrisy actually keeps us distant from God. You see, God even, we find here, according to Isaiah 29 that Jesus is quoting, that God actually begins to refuse the worship the worship is meaningless because the worshipers themselves are actually disregarding Him and His goodness. And Isaiah, Isaiah's words, I think, maybe even still ring true for us. 
that people will either ignore God's word and his identity to the point of apathy, or they will ignore his word by going beyond what he really desires from us. And the genre of chapter 29 that Jesus is quoting out of Isaiah is the genre of woe. And over and over and over again, people are said by Isaiah, woe to you that you do this, because you're actually doing more harm than good. Because if the purity begins to limit the relationship, if the desire for cleanliness undermines its purpose, like cleaning something makes you not want to use it, then it's done something that's counterintuitive. It's it's gone against its original meaning. And for these people, this confrontation from Jesus concerns the question as to who really has the authority to say what is clean and what is not clean. And overwhelmingly, Jesus is saying to you and to me and to these people who think that they have it figured out that His authority is supreme. The authority to say what is good and bad, what is clean and unclean, belongs to Jesus. So here's the good news in this. Even though our fraudulence and our superficiality and our our fakeness and our desire to be like these Pharisees and we're more concerned with the way that we appear than the way we actually are, even though those things actually keep us far from God, there is actually one who determines who is in and out, and it's Jesus. Thank God the one who actually determines who is clean and not clean and in and out is Jesus. So let me just let this kind of rest on us for a minute and maybe it will undermine our culture. Let me hold up kind of the values of our culture and see if we can kind of dig underneath them with the words of Jesus here. I think I can argue, I think I can make a pretty solid argument that we are a culture of style over substance. Like we are absolutely obsessed with the style of a thing rather than its substance, right? The appearance of a thing rather than the reality of a thing. And we spend a great deal of energy Uh, Man, we spend a great deal of effort and emotional resolve to see things appear a certain way and spend very little energy in making them actually a certain way, right? So so this is, in a consumer kind of driven culture, this is really obvious for us. In a few different ways, even though they're superficial, I think they point at what we're seeing here, right? So most people would rather look rich than actually be rich. Think about that. Most people would rather spend money, thereby being less rich, on things that make them look rich than to keep money, which actually makes them rich. Right? We would rather buy the symbols of wealth than to attain the identity of wealth. So much that we have system in, systems in place built by this idea in which you can go greatly into debt. Debt being that you are having negative wealth. Now you are actually less than poor. You, you actually are in debt. And we have a system in which you can go into debt to look like you're wealthy. Think about it. Think of the paradox that exists there. You can go in the opposite direction of a thing to appear as though you were something. You can go against your wealth to look wealthy. You see this all over. Style over substance. We care about the look of a thing rather than the identity of a thing. Consumers can also see this in name brands. Right? So there's some name brands that mean quality and longevity. And there's some name brands that mean cool. Think about it. And we'll spend more money for these kinds of things. But you know this, like there's some things you buy and you pay, you pay the extra because it's going to last you forever. And there's some things you buy you pay extra because it's going to look really cool. And this one lasts a really long time. And is a very little value on the outside. Very unimpressive things. 
But this one over here looks really cool and unfortunately looks dumb less than a year from now. Ever been there? Can you picture these in your mind? Can you picture the name brands you've spent money on? Right? Can you picture the investments you've made in things that were in the end for the appearance of a thing but not for the substance of a thing? You spent a lot of money on something that was really cheap but looked really cool. Right? I, anyone remember, this is just going to throw back to, to the early 90s, anyone remember Jinkos? So Jinkos were pairs of jeans, uh, hence the J&C of Jinko, right? Uh, the acronym or, or kind of abbreviated version. Jinkos were these big, massive, baggy jeans. And by baggy jeans, I mean they took like the material of 14,000 jeans and put them into one, and they were like huge and drug the ground. Remember this? This was really cool. I mean, it really was cool. Like people top and bottom of society, right? It was cool. You don't see a lot of that anymore, do you? It really hasn't stood the test of time. And friend, those were expensive jeans. They were not cheap. Like, if you went and saved up some money to buy some jean codes, you were doing something. But most of you are looking at me with blank stares, because that sounds absurd. And friend, it is, and it's an absurd illustration of how sometimes in our society, our values are more built around the coolness or trendiness or appearance of a thing rather than the substance and identity of a thing. Look at your investments. Look at the things you do. Are they more in substance or are they more in appearance? And Jesus says something that's profound. If you are more worried about the appearance of the thing, then you will have lost the heart of the thing. And this is especially important for you and for me. In this morning, in this place, when we're talking about this good news of Jesus, if we're more interested in how we look to outsiders or how we look to the world than how we look before a God who sees us to our core, then we will have actually done the opposite of our goal. And it would be like going into debt to look wealthy. You're on a course for destruction. That's legalism. That's true legalism. It's a focus on what we have done to the detriment of what God has done. And this is the culture in which we find ourselves, is it not? A culture that regularly enforces the code, you do, you accomplish, you achieve. Your worth is built in this achievement. This sense of worth is built in your own work. And I think when you see this and maybe even begin to feel the numbing and heartbreaking effects of living in that rat race of a world, you hear good news. Good news, mind you. Good news, not good advice, not something you should do, but good news that it is already done. And we gather together on a regular basis and Jesus attacks these people for this very purpose not to simply focus on the next thing we ought to do, but to focus entirely and wholeheartedly on the thing that Jesus has done. Right now, some of you, like right now, you're like, yeah, I need to do better at this. You're right, Jonathan. Thank you for that. I need to think better about that. I need to do better than that. And, and you don't realize it, but you've actually tried to go into debt to look rich. You're going against what God means to give for you. That's the beautiful thing about good news. You, you don't do it. You don't accomplish it. You just get to hear it and share it. It's a gift that God has accomplished this for you. And it's funny how religious people, according to this particular passage, are the worst at this. Are you self-reliant? I have good news for you. Cleanliness is not found in what you can do. It's found in what God has done. 
That's why it says that uncleanliness, did you catch the very next passage? Isn't about the thing that comes out of you, or excuse me, that comes into you, it's about the things that come out of you. So notice the location, the source of uncleanliness. Uncleanliness isn't out there, right? It's not external and superficial, it's internal. And so the other particular side of our prevailing culture or the, that we want superficial appearance of things, the style of things rather than the substance of things, is that we are constantly focused on what is out there and accomplishing what is over there. The thing that's wrong with the world is always out there, is it not? And for the Pharisee, the problem is in Jesus, and it's in people, and their uncleanliness, and their unholiness, and they don't follow the rules. It's it's out there. And Jesus says, man, the thing that's wrong is not out there. It's in here. In the poetic terms of one of my mentors, when you're looking for the evil in the world and trying to uncover the evil in the world, and journalists find this more than anyone else, when you, when you try to pull back the curtain on evil, you, in a frightening way, you always find a mirror. Because when you try to look at the most evil things that have happened in the world, you come to find out that those things are from us. From within, verse 21, there come these things. Out of our heart come these things. Notice how that speaks directly against our culture. Our culture wants you to play the blame game. It's always someone else's fault. Someone else's decision brought me here. I'm a victim of that. The thing that's wrong with me is the thing that happened to me. And Jesus says, no, man, the thing that's really wrong with you, although that might have hurt and caused a great deal of damage, the thing that's really broken is the thing that comes out of you. Because the thing that's broken is in you. Praise be to God that Jesus has the ability to make all things new over and over and over and over again. So even though our fraudulence determines or ends up making us far from God, thank God that it is Jesus who ultimately determines who is in or out. Because since Jesus calls us to trust in him and not in ourselves, there's a beautiful thing that Jesus begins to make clear for us. That no one is so religious that they can deserve the blessings of Jesus Christ. And no one is so unworthy that they cannot receive the blessings of Jesus Christ. Did you see the illustration in the, less, the, the following two, cha- the two stories? Jesus goes outside of the camp, goes away from the religious people, goes into Gentile territory, and a woman comes up, and, and Jesus kind of tests her faith by saying, like, all right, so uh, you, know, you want healing from me, but you have nothing to do with me. We're not the same kind of people. And Jesus kind of jabs at her, and he's like, hey, man, I came first to love my people. Don't let me stop loving my people in order to serve you. And he makes a weird analogy that comes out of the mouth of Jesus here. He says that you don't take away from the children and give to the dogs. No offense to some of you that think your dogs are children. This is a more literal particular picture. Your fluffy is, is your baby. I get it. But this, this, for the purpose of this illustration, Jesus makes a distinction between the way that you would treat children and the way that you would treat the animals. And you wouldn't take away from the children and give to the animals. And she responds, knowing, recognizing her unworthiness, recognizing that she doesn't deserve any special treatment. She just simply says that even the dogs, however, get the crumbs that the children drop. And Jesus marvels and says that this statement is now healed, has now made this demon leave your daughter. And he illustrates the exact same point again to a person who is not a Jew, is not a religious person, but he walks away hearing. 
Picture all of the, I mean, I, I, I would have shown you one of these, but this, I just, I, I don't have the ability to watch it in front of you. Um, around the internet, just Google ear implant, right? It's one of my favorite videos that circle around the internet are people who have an inability to hear and then by a surgical implant begin to be able to hear and they hear their own voices and the voice of others, right? And then they just begin bawling and then I begin bawling and then I'm mad at you for posting it, right? That's, that's <laughs> like, but for the purpose of this particular passage, it's really poignant, is it not? That same dramatic victory Jesus gives to this man and the look on his face must have been priceless. Jesus sighed as he empathized before he healed him. And a paradox happens in this chapter. The people who think they have it figured out end up being far from Jesus, and the people who don't deserve his mercy at all end up being right in his healing grasp. And the substance, I think, we see over the style that we desire can be found in this chapter, that the substance of Jesus' healing isn't for the people who are religious. They end up being insulted and sent away by Jesus. But the people who humbly bowed before Jesus and came to him with no pretension and no preconceived notion are the ones who left with the substance of new life. So here's how I will land this. Just picture it this way. The, the picture of this passage is that God stays distant from the proud. And we are called then to repent of sin, to repent of things that we have done wrong. But according to the first part of this chapter, and it's especially poignant for the ministry that I think God has called us to have in our city, we're also to repent from religiosity. Did you catch that? You don't just repent of sinful things, you repent of religious things. Because both sinful rebellion against God pushes us away from Him, but believing that God owes us by a religious activity also alienates us from Him. And friend, if you look at our city, there, there are lots of people, and there are plenty that are rebelling against God and sin, and we've been called to love and draw near to them. And just like, I love that, just like dogs who got some crumbs who fell off the table, you and I are meant to go with joy and gratitude with this newfound gift that God has given us that we didn't deserve. But friend, there's also a lot of people in our city that are self-righteous, that they're believing in their own hearts that what they have done has made them right before God and what they have avoided has left them righteous before God. And the gospel that God has done something for us is just as powerfully transformative for the rebellious sinner as it is the self-righteous Pharisee. This is our calling. This is who we get to preach. This is the good news. So here's a test for you. If what comes out of us is what reveals us and the substance of our character comes out in this, here's just a test. Do you confess your own sin and mistakes more than you confess the sin and mistakes of others? Do you find yourself being really good at recognizing the mistakes and failures and sins of others? Or do you find yourself really good at recognizing the mistakes and failures and sins of yourself? I'll give you a test. I would never say this in any other, any other uh, capacity, but pull out your smartphone. Look at your Facebook page. Look at the last few things you've said or posted to people on social media. Are they pointing out the failures and mistakes of others, or are they pointing out your own failures and mistakes? Because one points to us and our greatness, and the other points to Jesus and his mercy. 
One makes much of us at the expense of destroying others. And one makes up makes good before Jesus and makes much of his grace by identifying with that which is broken. So here's a posture that I want us to end on. What, what if our posture as Christians was actually just like these people who run to Jesus? And rather than saying, you are sinners and you better turn to Jesus, what if we looked at the world and said, hey friend, we are sinners. We had better turn to Jesus. Wouldn't that be a radically different posture than we see of the Pharisees? What if we were more concerned with exposing our own mistakes and sin because we know that Jesus makes all things new than we were concerned with exposing the brokenness of others so they won't see how busted we are? What if we were a radical group of people who exposed our own failures to make much of the glory of Jesus' mercy? What would that look like? I think that might look pretty amazing. And not because we would be obsessed with the way that it looks, but because the substance and the transformative nature of the gospel would have made us into a new being. Let's pray. Jesus, this is a hard word. Uh, this is a difficult word to expose and to even understand in our own lives because our hearts are so easily bent toward making much of ourselves. We do not naturally draw attention to our failures, but instead we are quite consumed with making ourselves look better than we are. God, help us to not water down the weight and severity of your words here to these Pharisees, but instead let them ring true for us. So if there's some in this room and we are, so, we are so shaken by our own sin, would you begin to show us that you've done something greater and you've given us greater grace than all of our sin? But if there's some in this room and maybe if, if they were honest with themselves, they're in denial about their own evil. They're in denial about the hurt in their own heart. They're, in fact, right now they're terrified that the people around them would find out who they really are. They're trying as hard as they can to hide their brokenness and to hide their failure. Would you begin to show them the mercy you showed to these people in this chapter? You receive them, you redeem them, that you'll heal them, you'll give them new life. Help us to repent not only of that which is rebellious and sinful, but help us to repent of that which is self-righteous and sinful. Help us to recognize that you have done something better and greater, not only than all of our sin, but you have done something even greater than all of our religiosity. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.